it's been a while since I've been standing up here. In fact, I think February was the last time that I preached, which was to Timothy, uh, which means that I'm not expecting anyone to remember uh, what I said back then. So just a brief reminder of to Timothy. In fact, for those who I haven't met, my name is Andrew. Um, I am a regular here at St. Helens, uh, but also studying to be like Steve, that is, a vicar, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the path to vicarness. Um, and uh, I live up in North London uh, at uh, Oak Hill Bible College, which is where I'm studying with Richard, who's joined us from last week and will be here all this year as well. And um, so, yes, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's near the end, isn't it? Has anyone got the page number still? 1196. Thank you very much. So 1196, if you're wanting to follow along. And just a quick reminder, or possibly uh, to hear for the first time, this is the Apostle Paul's last letter before he died. So near the end of, of this letter, Paul says, like a drink offering that has been poured out, I'm approaching the end of my life. Paul knows he is going to die soon. He's writing from jail, and in all likelihood he was not long after this beheaded. Uh, as a Roman citizen, that was the, the humane way that they were privileged to die, uh, so he just had his head chopped off rather than anything more gruesome. But Paul then, these, these are his last words that we have recorded, and we give great significance to last words, don't we? We think, oh, the last thing someone says must be one of the most important things that they say, and Paul has the unusual situation of, of knowing in advance when he's going to die, and this is what he leaves us with. And his big charge to Timothy is that Timothy needs to guard the gospel, we saw in chapter 1 in January that many people had abandoned the faith. They'd walked away from Paul. And this whole letter, a big part of it, is Paul's command to Timothy saying, look, stay faithful. Stick with the gospel. Others may have walked away, but you need to stick with it. And then some more specific commands about what that will look like in the day-to-day. And we're going to look at a bit of that now. So I'll pray, and then we'll have a look at today's passage. Father God, we thank you for our great older brother, the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the man that you made him, a man of great intellect, and how he used that to serve you, but also a man of great love and compassion, who so deeply loved the churches that he had planted. And we see how deeply he loved his younger brother, Timothy. And though he sent him into difficult roles, we see how much that his his priorities, Paul's priorities, were always what was best for Timothy and what was best for your church. And so we pray this morning, as we look at these difficult, hard-hitting, challenging words, that you would work in us to make us the people that you want us to be. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are following along with me, look again at verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, 
unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. That's quite some list, isn't it? Paul does not pull his punches. That is Paul's description of our world. When Paul says in the last days, the last days are the moment from Jesus' resurrection until the moment when Jesus comes back again, as he will in the future. Every day from then until Jesus comes back is the last days. We are living in the last days. And so Paul is describing life in our day, and in fact in every generation, if you scratch beneath the surface. I wonder how you felt, though, as I read those words. Did you think, yes, that is what our world is like? Or did you think, calm down, Paul, a little bit excessive? Because I think sometimes our world is so good at presenting what Paul would call ungodliness as clean, as attractive, magazines, films, song lyrics and the like. So when sin is presented to us by beautiful dancers in music videos or by beautiful people in beautiful places in magazines or handsome actors and beautiful actresses in films, then they can make what Paul describes as ungodly to be attractive. So you're watching a fairly innocuous romantic comedy, if that's your thing, about an unmarried guy and an unmarried girl. And if you're not careful, you get so caught up in the story that you even find yourself rooting for them to jump into bed together. Because relationships are a good thing, created by God, but not that way. And the scriptwriter and the director and the editor are selling us the idea that this is right, this is good, it's good that they've got together, it's good that they are now expressing their love together. Think Titanic. Think The Notebook, Bridget Jones, about a boy. But what is so often sold to us as morally right and good, God hates. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The kind of things that Paul lists in verses 1 to 4. Because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Let no one deceive you. It is easy for us to be deceived by the world. And so I think Paul's words here are intended like a bucket of cold water over our heads to wake us up. That's why he piles up the language again and again and again to wake us up from the dream that our world has sold us. There was a phase when you kind of couldn't get through a sermon without someone using a Matrix illustration. There's that line in the Matrix where Morpheus says to Neo, Neo has come out of the Matrix. If you haven't seen this, that might not make sense. But anyway, the Matrix, Morpheus says, is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And I think that's what happens in our culture. The world is pulled over our eyes, blinding us from God's truth, what is actually true. So what is behind all of these wrong behaviours, underneath them, driving them, motivating them? Look with me at verses 2 and 4. Paul says, 
People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then at the end of the list, verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The root of all of those behaviours from the least to the worst is misplaced love, disordered love, a love of self rather than a love of God, a love of the world and the things of the world rather than a love for God's kingdom and the things of his kingdom. And is that not a a revealing diagnosis of the world? Underneath those symptoms, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, underneath those symptoms, the cause, the disease is lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, and ultimately the problem, not lovers of God. But let's be honest. Is this not so often also a picture of us. This is not actually a list about the world out there. Too many of the things on that list are true of me too much of the time. Not all of them, all of the time, but some of them too much of the time, and one is too much. So what do we love? What are we passionate about. Do we love Jesus or do we love the world? I did uh, a two-year apprenticeship at uh, St. Helens Bishopsgate, uh, the other St. Helens on the east side of the city. And uh, I was on uh, what they called the city team. So we had a a Tuesday lunchtime service for people who worked in the city and they'd come in on their lunch breaks and uh, we had a short service. And uh, I remember being at a team meeting. I'd only been on the team a short while. And a guy called VJ Menon, uh, who would often pop in, uh, was joining us that lunchtime. Uh, VJ, uh, he was converted out of a Hindu background to Christianity by coming to these Tuesday lunchtime services a number of years before, I think in the 80s, when he was converted. And so by this stage, he was probably in his 50s, maybe 60s. And I just remember him saying in passing, I, he wouldn't even remember that he said this. He was talking and he said something, something, something. How many times this morning have you told Jesus that you love him? And I thought to myself, I can't remember the last time I told Jesus that I love him. In fact, I'm not sure I can even say the words, I love you, Jesus, without them feeling slightly weird and forced. And that was a real helpful wake-up call. That was something like a bucket of cold water over my head to go, well then, why am I a Christian? And for me, what was helpful then was to go back to the Gospels and reread the Gospels and see Jesus and see why he is worthy of our love, our honour, our respect. That might be the, the message of today for, for some here. Um, it might be that you might be best off not, not listening to the rest of the sermon. If that's a big challenge, then maybe take that challenge home. Do we love the world or do we love God? Do we love the things of the world or do we love Jesus? It's a sobering thought and it's worth dwelling on. Because I think the big surprise of this passage is that it's not about the world out there. It is about those who would say that they are inside the church. And even worse, it's actually about those who would present themselves as church leaders. 
from verse 1 again, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, the list goes on, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What's that about? Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What does it mean to have the form of godliness but deny its power? It means presenting yourself to the world out there as one who knows God. But actually inside, it doesn't make any difference at all. There is no love there, no heart, no consistency of public and private. And isn't that so often what puts people off the church? The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, of all the things in the world that stink in the nostrils of men, hypocrisy is the worst. Now, if reading that list, we're aware that we ourselves are hypocrites to one level or another, which all of us will be, this is not the occasional slip-up that Paul is talking about. It's not falling into sin followed by genuine repentance and sadness. What Paul is talking about, these people here, is a high-handed self-belief that they are right, and despite all attempts by others to correct them, and despite the clear teaching of God's word, they pursue a life that does not reflect the doctrine that they profess to teach, profess to represent. Look down at verse 7. Paul says of them, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what should Timothy do? Verse 5, second half verse 5, have nothing to do with such people. Some translations simply say, avoid such people. Don't even be in contact with them. Have nothing to do with such people. Now to be clear, this is not the first step. The first step with these kinds of people, we saw back in probably February or something. But look with me again as a reminder at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. So Paul says, look, first step, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So first step, you don't cut them off straight away. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That same phrase, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. But then if they refuse and refuse and refuse and refuse, and verse 7, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, those are the kind of people who Paul says have nothing to do with them. So for Timothy, as an elder in the church at Ephesus, that might mean putting people out of the church. After attempts at gentle correction have failed, remove them, tell them they are no longer welcome, and tell his congregation to avoid them. Now it may be that some are sitting here thinking, well look, classic Paul. You know, Jesus came preaching love, and then Paul came preaching harsh doctrine. Well, then let's hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 18. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You might say, gently correct him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do not acknowledge him as a member of the church. Now I can imagine again some here, and definitely I know friends of mine outside the church who might be who would, would think, well, this is one of the kinds of things I hate about the church. How narrow-minded it is, how bigoted it is. How can you say this person is in and this person is out? Which is what Paul is telling the church leaders to do. Well, there was a really interesting article in the New York Times back in December. So there's reference to Christmas in here. That's why it's from December. Um, An interview uh, from a skeptical atheistic journalist with the pastor and author, um, New York pastor and author, Tim Keller. The journalist, Christoph, asks this. Tim, look, I admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Since this is the Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief, or can I mix and match? Keller says this. If something is truly integral to a body of thought, you can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion can't be whatever we desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace, and I come out and say climate change is a hoax then they will ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that there have to be some boundaries for dissent or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organisation. And they'd be right. It's the same with any religious faith. If there are those within the church who are insisting that they are Christian and even teaching others in the name of Christ and yet their lives clearly deny Christ, then to leave them in the church would be proves confusing for those inside the church and misleading for those outside the church. So what might it look like for us personally? Most of us here aren't church leaders, uh, only one in the room as far as I'm aware right now. What might it mean for us personally? Well, it might mean that there are people that we should avoid, people that we should have nothing to do with. And again, just to be really clear, this is about people who are claiming to be a part of the church. It is not about our friends who would not claim to be a part of the church. My friends who aren't Christians don't claim to live like Christians. Of course they don't. And I don't, you know, disassociate with them for doing so. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So there in 1 Corinthians, and here in 2 Timothy, Paul is speaking about those within the church who carry on in this way. Our aim is first to gently correct, but if they are uncorrectable, then we should avoid. 
Again, people might be saying, well, aren't we supposed to forgive? This doesn't sound like the Jesus of forgiveness and love. Well, again, Jesus' words, Luke 17. Jesus says, look, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, you know, should we not do that? What's the difference? The difference is repentance. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Those Paul is talking about aren't repentant, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So firstly, it might mean there are people that we should avoid. But secondly, and I don't know, possibly more commonly, it might mean that we need to avoid false teaching. Now, much of this in these days can come to us online, podcasts, online sermons, that sort of thing. And we need to be very careful about what we are listening to. So the treasurer at a church I was at in Essex, St. Paul's in Essex, came to me one week and said, oh, and he was talking about how he enjoyed listening to the sermons of Joyce Mayer. Now, I don't know if you know, Joyce Mayer is an American preacher, and she says some very damaging things that are not true. She is not a true teacher of the Bible. And in that situation, it doesn't always go as smoothly as this, but I thought, well, you know, do I just say nothing? Do I say something? And I said, look, you know, uh, Chris, I'm worried about what Joyce teaches. Would you mind reading an article about Joyce Mayer and her preaching and, and think about it more carefully? He read the article and came back to me, in a very grace of him, he's probably 20 years my senior, came back to me the following week and said, I've read that and I won't be listening to her again. Why is this so important for us? Why is this even worth bothering with? Well, firstly, it is a danger to us. In the Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 20, it says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We need to be careful who we associate with because we will always be influenced by them. And so we need to be careful who we'll associate with. It is a danger for us, but it is also a danger for others. As we've said, one of the main reasons that people get turned off from religion in general or Christianity in particular is hypocrisy of all the things in the world that stink the most in the nostrils of men. Hypocrisy is the worst. And if we don't make clear that people who are calling themselves Christians and in particular representing themselves as Christian leaders, if we don't make clear that they are not with us, then people will lump them with us and tar us with the same brush. But if we separate ourselves out, if we say, no, that is not the Christianity that we follow, that is not what the Christian life is supposed to look like, then some who look on will say, ah, you aren't like them. You practice what you preach. You don't do it perfectly, but I see you repenting when you get things wrong. I will listen to you, and perhaps they may be saved. And the same goes for some within the church. Perhaps some within the church, if it does come to that really difficult situation where someone has to be removed from the church, someone else will say, ah, now I see that you really do believe what you say you believe and you stand by it. I was wavering when I saw how little some people seem to live it out. But I see now that you and this church have integrity. I will stay. 
And isn't that a great hope? That that's the goal of doing this? That by our integrity, in taking the difficult path, this is a very difficult thing to do. I think this is probably the most difficult sort of call that I've had to do at St. Helens. Because if we do this, people will speak against us. I think of a friend of mine uh, from my days at, at St. Helens Bishopsgate. He went off to pastor a church in a small town and his church in a previous, under a previous pastor had decided not to be a part of churches together in the town that they were in. And my friend Andre was walking down the high street and, and a lady came up to him and said, oh, you're the new pastor of, of the, the Baptist church, aren't you? Well, at least now, you know, now that old pastor's gone, you can rejoin the churches together group and, you know, that, that'll be good. And Andre said, well, actually, we're not going to do that because there are other people presenting themselves as churches in that organization who aren't truly teaching the Christian faith and we don't want to mislead people. And she shouted at him and screamed at him in the middle of the high street, you're what's wrong with the church, you're the narrow-minded you know, bigots, you are the reason that people aren't interested in the, in the Christian faith, and walked away and left him with that. That may be the kind of response we get if we are faithful to this teaching. It is a hard thing to do. But imagine that for doing it, we might actually cause some people to listen to the gospel who wouldn't have listened otherwise, and repent and come to Christ. Because one day, Jesus is coming back. Imagine if in this life, there were those who you didn't avoid, as Paul says, to do so, because you didn't want to hurt their feelings, or because you were afraid of what other people might say. And because of that, they went on thinking that they were Christians, when actually their lives denied the gospel and they didn't know Jesus at all. Or others looked at them and thought, well, if they're living that way and they're a Christian, well, then I'll be fine on the day of judgment. And then on the last day, their foolishness is plain to all as Jesus comes back and he says to them, I never knew you, be gone. But imagine instead, if instead of taking the easy path, we took the hard path. We tread the path of faithfulness to Christ, gently correcting. Or if out of love for them and concern for others, we were prepared to avoid those who were unrepentantly false in life or teaching, prepared to suffer the risk of or the actuality of relationship fallout. But then through our gentle correction, or through our making clear that these open hypocrites were not true representatives of Christ, that actually that meant that people came to faith, that others persevered in faith. And then on that day when Jesus returns, rather than folly being exposed, we see their smiling faces as Jesus comes back, as they enter into the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What do we love more, the world or Jesus? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? How we answer that question will determine how we respond to this challenge, as it will determine how we respond to every challenge in God's world. What do we love more? Do we love the world more or do we love Jesus more? 
I'm going to leave a couple of moments of silence for just for us to reflect on which parts of this word are relevant for us, and then I'll close this in prayer in a moment.